Imagine an LA where everyone's parents partied. Where hitchhiking was seen as safe as taking the bus. An LA where you could cruise from the desert to the beach in under an hour. Top down, hair blowing in the breeze. No gnawing obligation to slick on sunscreen like a condom against skin cancer. There wasn't a 24-hour news cycle broadcasting stranger danger. Until the Manson murders in 1969, many parts of the city just left their doors unlocked. No AIDS, anti-porn feminism, free love was still free, and hippies turned parents worked to be more open-minded and permissive than the generation before them. Growing up in the 70s could be full of exciting adventures like five teenage girls touring the world in a rock and roll group. But it also opened the door for things like middle-aged men partying with girls just old enough to get their periods. In 1975, it was common for guys to pull over and just hand quaaludes to women they thought were attractive. This is the world the Runaways were making music in. If you've been following along or know anything about the Runaways, you know their manager, Kim Fowley, was a complicated character. Here, I'm just going to play an interview clip with the real Kim Fowley, so you know what I mean. I was sexually abusive to the whole universe. I, I wouldn't limit it to any one person. Like many difficult but influential men, his behavior was ignored or minimized because of some perceived genius, a tallying of cultural contributions. We've discussed that Fowley was a hype man and opportunist more than anything, Perhaps his greatest accomplishment is the myth of his genius. But how did his, let's say, unique way of interacting with the world affect the women he worked with? This season is about diving into the cultural contributions made by ladies who didn't work with Fowley. But to put those in relief, we also have to understand the runaways. Today, we're looking at the best-remembered lineup of the band. Joan Jett. Sandy West, Lita Ford, Sheree Curry, and Jackie Fox. Why did these women last the longest together? And what did playing together allow them, or not allow them, to do? There's so much to say about this lineup that I can't contain it to one episode, but let's cover what we can. I'll warn you now that in the latter half, we'll be talking about sexual violence. I don't go into many details, and it's not the only thing discussed. But... I'm cautioning you here to listen to that portion when you're in a good emotional headspace, because this one gets a little heavy. I'm Miko Caporel, and you're listening to Bad Reputation, a women's rock history podcast. This is episode three of our ongoing series, The Runaway Runaways. In our last episode, we lost Mickey Steele the original singer and bass player for The Runaways. Mickey Steele changed her name to Michael Steele, and about 10 years later, she found megastardom as the bass player for The Bangles. But when Mickey left in November of 1975, The Runaways were reduced to Joan Jett, Lita Ford, and Sandy West, which is to say, two guitar players and a drummer. Not an ideal lineup. Carrie Crome was still contracted as a songwriter for the band, but she wasn't a singer. 
Joan had been pushing to write more and more material, and she'd been developing as a vocalist. In the long run, she didn't want to be in a band that was just a vehicle for other people's songs. She really wanted to say something of her own. But Burnett's don't get record deals. At least, that's what Fowley would say. It's hard to gauge if this is how Fowley felt the world should work, or just how it did work. Friends seemed to feel the latter, and they could believe this. Fowley had been in talks with a few record companies, especially Mercury Records, who had encouraged him to find a blonde singer. The entertainment industry, and Hollywood in particular, has long had a fascination with blondes. Blondes represent youth and purity, their hair like the most precious metal, and their bodies like blank canvases to project desire onto. Because of everything blondness represents, when a blonde goes bad, it feels exceptionally bad. So when Fowley found Cherie Curry, with her lithe frame, puckered sneer, and saucer blue eyes, he saw the final ingredient to make the runaway saleable. As teenagers, Cherie and her identical twin, Marie, would tell their mother they were babysitting to cover for nights out. Then they'd sneak off to a nearby gas station and run through a carefully rehearsed ballet in the bathroom, bowing and bending around one another to smear on lipstick and shimmy into pants, a perfect dance recital that kept them from ever touching urine-stained surfaces. Once they were all dolled up, Friends would swing by in a car, and they'd leave their safe suburb of Encino, California for torrid escapades on the Sunset Strip. In her memoir, Shree describes getting ready for clubs as her transformation. It was the process of becoming what she calls the Shree thing. When I was dressed like this, I finally felt at home in my own skin. I was not just plain old Cherie Curry, sweet little surfer girl from the valley anymore. I was something wild, untamed, glamorous. I was my own creation, monstrous, mysterious, and powerful. Not long before joining the Runaways, Cherie was raped by Marie's boyfriend, an older man they'd met at Rodney's English Disco. The sweet surfer girl inside of her died that day. To move forward, she resolved to live as the Cherie thing full-time, take control of her body by cutting her sun-kissed hair into a Ziggy Stardust mullet, let herself lean into the things that made her feel most alive. It was the first time she became visually distinct from her twin. Growing up, Cherie and Marie had always come as a package deal. A package deal may be groomed for stardom. Their mother and older sister were both actors. At two, they were booked to sing Twinkle Twinkle on My Three Sons, which never aired, by the way, because they froze during filming. Later, they sang alongside their father in talent shows, and as teenagers, they spent five months dancing in the background on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Their family nicknamed them Double Trouble, and they got sent to separate high schools. It was an earnest parental attempt to discourage their frequent co-conspiracies. In the first episode, I told you the story of Kim Fowley approaching Marie Curie at the Sugar Shack, a popular teen club that also led in connected older men. Supposedly, 
Murray had the good sense to turn Fowley down. But when he approached her twin, Cherie leapt at the chance. This is the story Cherie tells in her memoir. Marie's told it even in recent interviews. The two have been telling variations of this tale since the runaways first started gaining traction. And why not? It's a great story. First, it's a Hollywood classic. A star is discovered outside the industry. Second, it helps define Cherie in opposition to her sister. Even omitting Fowley's reputation from the story, it paints Marie as a good girl. She turned down the unpredictability and seediness of music, but Cherie, Cherie wanted to be bad. Here you have two women so similar they even look the same. But the rock and roll demon is so powerful, so seductive, one of them can't help but succumb. Unfortunately, the story's not true. Exactly how Cherie came to sing for the Runaways isn't totally clear. In The Queens of Noise, the Runaways book much of this podcast is based on, journalist Evelyn McDonald notes Cherie was likely looking for a way into the band, that she'd been asking around, trying to get noticed by Fowley or Joan Jett. A far more common, but far less interesting tale of life in Hollywood. When McDonald interviewed Fowley about it, he said he had approached Cherie and asked if she was a musician. Cherie expressed interest in auditioning, but asked if her sister could join too. For a second I thought to myself, oh my god, twin Bridget Bardos. But that's not part of the formula. If it was a sister act, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be the female Rolling Stones. You need the rock and roll bitch in there. So then I said something to Cherie, which probably changed her life, and she did not write about. She had been a twin of somebody up to that point. And then I said, no, we're only interested in one girl, not two. So for the first time in Cherie's life, somebody was noting that she was different from an identical twin. This is also the story you hear directly from Fowley in the Joan Jett documentary that shares the name of this podcast. And Cherie's interview in the movie generally supports it. I'm inclined to think this is somewhere close to Cherie's actual origin story. But even if it's not, it's the most intriguing. Not only does Fowley position himself as an unsung hero here, but he also talks about pushing her to separate from her twin. On the surface, there's nothing inherently wrong with this. Encouraging someone to be an individual is great. But, as we'll see, numerous band members expressed feeling like Fowley emotionally isolated them, or pitted them against one another. Conscious or not, it's a classic tactic of abusive people to sever them from their support systems. It disorients victims so they're easier to control. Reflecting on her time in The Runaways, Shri has often credited the strength of her family relationships as what got her through the toughest parts. And trust me, you're in for some rough times. But by Cherie's own accounts, being a twin isn't what dragged down her sense of self. It's what saved her. Now, even more mythologized than how Cherie was found is her tryout for the band. Outside an unassuming garage, amidst identical houses in an L.A. suburb, Cherie showed up to audition, 
Her older sister wished her well as she stepped out of the car, but she felt like an ant approaching the ranch home. It was a place producer Kim Fowley was renting, instruments strewn everywhere in a fraying, sweat-stained couch in an otherwise empty living room. Joan, Lita, Sandy, and Carrie were all there, joking about the impending doom of Mickey, who was technically still the singer. Before the audition, Fowley had told Cherie to learn a Susie Quattro song. So she'd spent days singing the same Quattro cover of Fever to her reflection, her siblings, her David Bowie posters. Cherie thought Quattro's version of the Peggy Lee classic had a brooding quality to it, that it was a song she could really sell with her delivery. But when it came time to sing with the band, no one knew the tune. Supposedly, Lita said, That's middle of the road pansy ass shit. So Joan suggested writing a song specifically for Cherie. What? Right now? No, three weeks from fucking Tuesday. Yeah, right now. Cherie was stunned. Did Mick Ronson and David Bowie ever just bang it out in the studio? Didn't songs take days or even weeks to prepare? Didn't they have to wait for inspiration to strike? Wasn't there some sort of process? Why not, Shuri? It's only rock and fucking roll, isn't it? Go on, dogs. We've got work to do. Joan and Fowley disappeared for a few hours. When they returned, Joan handed Shuri a scrap from her notebook with haphazardly scrawled lyrics. She said, Cherry Bob. It's a play on your name. Shuri, Cherry, get it? It was clever and powerful. It made Cherie feel seen. She was still reeling from the aftershock of her parents' divorce. Her dad was out of the picture, her mom was never around, and the closest she had to parents were her older sister and her older sister's boyfriend, two people who provided drugs as much as guidance. Cherie got made fun of at school, and all she really enjoyed was her time as the Cherie thing. Cherry Bomb captured the anger and frustration always simmering inside her. Singing those words wouldn't be bringing music to life. It'd be giving meaning and purpose to her life. This was it. She was ready. Fally gave some instructions, and the group practiced a few hesitant run-throughs. The song was so good. But was it coming together? Shree couldn't tell how the audition was going. It just didn't feel like she was capturing it yet. Joan, how many other singers are you trying out? I wouldn't worry about it. The group likes you. I can tell. But how many? I don't know, Cherie, like nine or ten? The bottom fell off her stomach. It was now or never. Mustering every ounce of courage inside her, Cherie grabbed the mic with both hands. The group ran through the song one more time, and she snarled and strutted like a rhinestone David Bowie on a cocaine bender, Bowie teetering on the edge of death but dancing like he's got miles of life to land on. That was Cherie in that moment. When the song ended, everyone stood still, letting the experience wash over them. Cherie Curry was unanimously voted in. If that sounds like an epic movie scene, it's because it's basically as true as one. This version of events is how Cherie describes her audition in her memoir, 
Lita Ford shares a similar story in her autobiography, though she says the audition took place at the band's practice space above a drugstore. And as far as I can tell, Fowley was living in an apartment at this time, not a house, so it seems like that drugstore practice space is probably where the audition happened. But that's a minor detail. No one even agrees on the major details. Lita also says the band didn't vote on admitting Cherie, that it was entirely up to Fowley. Peggy Foster, who we'll meet in a second, says she remembers the band writing Cherry Bomb in the studio long after Cherie was accepted into the band. On The Runaway's first record, Joan and Fowley are credited with writing Cherry Bomb, but Carrie Crome claims part of the lyrics were ripped from her notebooks. And Fowley said he wrote the song with Cherie in mind the night before the tryout. So who's to say what really happened? With the exception of Carrie Crome maybe deserving some royalties, it's not actually that important what's true about Cherry Bomb. Or even how Cherie was found. Both these things are interesting, but their specifics don't change the Runaway's big picture. What's important is how, even in its infancy, the band and its members were made to seem larger than life. A moment where stars aligned. Part of what keeps these stories alive isn't how often former members tell them, although there's that. It's that we want to believe them. These stories are exciting, they're fantastical, and they give hope for what's possible for teen women. Now that the Runaways had a lead singer, they needed a bass player. Fowley reached out to the Musicians' Union, Local 47, who gave him the name of a 19-year-old named Peggy Foster. Peggy had been making music since she was six years old. A virtuoso on guitar, piano, and bass, she had already been in three or four bands by the time Fowley approached her. This didn't stop Fowley from vetting her through various male musician acquaintances, but it did spare her on audition. The only thing she had to do to join the band was change her hair. Peggy had flowing straight locks of ashy blonde hair. Sandy, Lita, and Cherie were also blonde. He told Peggy he thought her look was too suburban, what he called Two Mill Valley. Likely, he just wanted more visual variety, so he convinced her to cut and perm her hair. Her hair which had been a huge part of her identity. As she sat in the salon chair, awaiting the cut, Tears streamed down Peggy's face. And, as it turned out, her sacrifice to the rock gods wasn't worth it. Sandy and Lita were dreams to play with, and Peggy was in two other bands at the time. Of the three, the Runaways were the most dysfunctional. Rehearsals were fraught with shouting, tantrums, tears. Fowley encouraged the girls to bring mean and nasty to their music, but Peggy says it often meant they got mean and nasty with each other. And he played divide and conquer, encouraging competition and discord, so they were too racked with drama to ever become friends. Peggy left the runways after only a month. Supposedly, Fowley threatened, You'll never play in Hollywood again. I'll ruin you. Fowley didn't ruin Peggy's future in music, though. In fact, she's enjoyed a long, thriving career as a studio musician. She's worked with people such as Steve Vai, 
Barry White, and Barry Manilow, and she didn't retire until 2018. But threatening to ruin someone, and especially a teenager, was a Fowley classic. For example, in 1978, Fowley threatened to sue a 17-year-old named Pleasant Gaiman for a passing comment she made in a zine called Lobotomy. In the days of Rodney's, she'd circulate a one-sheet of all the gossip within the glitter scene. But Rodney's was long dead, punk was in full force, and fanzines were the thing. She and her best friend and co-founder, Randy Kay, would begin assembling lobotomy by getting drunk with their friends. They'd lie on the floor surrounded by magazines, pens, and paper, just taping together whatever ideas and jokes came into their brains. Articles would often be half-typed, half-handwritten, because Pleasant had skipped typing class to get high. Typing just took too long, so lobotomy issues usually looked and read something between a punk flyer, a junior high slam book, and an actual magazine. Joan Jett was one of the first friends Pleasant had made in L.A., so she and Randy used to watch the Runaways rehearse. In the inaugural issue, she made what she calls a sarcastic and derogatory comment about Fowley. And I can't even remember exactly what I wrote about Kim Fowley, but it was very cutting and very sarcastic. And he called me up at my mom's house on the landline, and, and um, he, he threatened to sue me for what was in the body. And I was all cocky at first, so I was like, sue me? What are you going to sue me for, Kim? I don't have anything except a typewriter. I wrote all this stuff about Kim Fowley and Lobotomy, and when he called me up, telling me he was going to sue me, I was like, all, um, I was all snotty to him and sort of challenging. And then he said, well, I'll sue your mother and blah, 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 like all this. So I just thought, you know, like maybe I'd get zero retraction. And we could not afford to get Lobotomy re-Xerox. It had cost around $22 to print, about $86 in today's money. Not the most expensive magazine in the world, but not cheap for a teenager with no job and a single mom. Pleasant was so shaken by Fowley's threats, she took the bus and hitchhiked to every record store that was selling the zine on consignment. Then she manually cut out the article from each copy. It didn't even occur to her how empty it was to threaten a teenager who had nothing over a rinky-dink zine. Fowley had made it seem serious, and she didn't have enough life experience to know better. Now, at this point in our story, Cherie had been in the band for about a month. The Runaways themselves were only about four months old, but as I mentioned, they were on Mercury Records' radar. They'd been playing up and down the California coast, including at least one show that resulted in police. Mercury was eager to sign if they could scrounge up a new bass player. Shortly after Lita's initial departure, the group had auditioned a guitarist. She was tall and tan with a thick crown of brown hair. Her eyes were large and curious and she bubbled with enthusiasm. Only problem was she didn't totally fit in with the other girls. She came from the valley and liked Creedence Clearwater revival. Her gear was amateur even compared to the fledgling bands. Could they really consider anyone's playing after hearing Lita's fingers effortlessly skip across frets? This girl was a hard pass. 
But now that they were desperate for a bass player, they decided to give Jackie Fox another call. Except she was still Jackie Fuchs, the daughter of a bohemian nurse and engineer who transplanted to California from New York. Jackie is incredibly smart with an unquenchable thirst for knowledge, a skill that served her well on three trivia shows, including Jeopardy. As a kid, it made her hungry to learn about and try everything. She was a surfer, a student council member, a quarter finalist in the Miss Teen USA pageant. One of the appeals of surfing was that not a lot of women did it. Jackie didn't just like trying new things, she liked forging paths. Her mother had forced her to take piano lessons as a child. At nine, she got her first acoustic guitar, and a few years later, Jackie upgraded to electric. She was from a family of doctors and lawyers. While her parents nurtured her artistic side, she felt pressure to grow up and do something practical and world-changing. Strapping on a guitar presented the possibility of doing something different, being someone different. When she heard Kiss for the first time, saw an image of them in their wild makeup and glittering outfits, she thought, She'd formed a few bands with guy friends, but nothing major. Mostly, she did what many LA girls her age did, hitchhiked to the Sunset Strip to hit the clubs. One night, Rodney Bingenheimer noticed her at the Starwood. The former beauty contestant often exaggerated her already tall height with platform shoes, so she was kind of hard to miss. Bingenheimer approached her. How old was she? Did she play an instrument? Immediately, Bingenheimer dragged her from the club to Fally's apartment so she could meet the famous producer. There's this band. She's got to be part of it. Didn't Fally think so? Yeah, Fally agreed. This woman definitely needed to audition for The Runaways. The audition, as we mentioned, it didn't go as she hoped. But Jackie was hardly deterred. Instead, she was inspired to one-up Fowley and start her own all-girl band. Hearing this, Fowley either felt threatened or impressed. Because three months later, he called to ask if she'd learned bass for the Runaways. By the end of 1975, all five women and their parents would sign a contract with Fowley so that he could act as their manager, find them a record deal, and get the Runaways touring. When Fowley brought the contract to the girl's parents, he promised chaperones, tutors. He would set up a trust fund for them and make sure they earned their high school diplomas. There'd be detailed records of all the money coming in and going out that parents could review. On stage, it'd be all rock and roll, but off, they'd be cared for like their parents were there. Cherie's dad was suspicious. How could he trust someone who lived in LA but didn't know how to drive? Sandy's parents thought Fowley talked a lot without saying anything. This guy was a total gas bag. But everyone had a looming sense that their kids would run away if they didn't let them be in the band. And Fowley was going to meet all the girls' needs, right? He was writing these promises into the contract, right? And this was a chance for all their kids to go down in history, right? 
a chance that depended on every parent being in agreement, so they wouldn't hold another kid back. So everyone's parents did what Fallet wanted them to. They signed the contract. Plus, at least one parent felt endeared to Fowley. Joan's mom would spend hours on the phone with him. Warm, chatty conversations. She liked that he took Joan under his wing, encouraged her as a performer and a songwriter. That he made Joan feel seen and was mentoring her to be competitive in the rock business. After all, both Joan's parents had raised her to believe she could do anything, and this was the path their determined daughter had chosen. If Joan was willing to do the work, who was her mom to stop her? Joan and Fowley always had a strong bond. Most of the runaway songs, and certainly their strongest songs, have been written or co-written by them. Fowley didn't care that Joan was attracted to women. In fact, kids would get kicked out of their houses for being gay, and Fowley would let them crash on his couch. During one performance, Joan cracked a rib because someone threw a battery at her. Often, she'd cry backstage after shows because audiences were so hostile towards the group. Moments like that felt easier to endure because Fowley had prepared her in rock and roll boot camp. She was grateful to have someone like Fowley who seemed to believe in her. She had support, a chance at something. And in 1975, a lot of women felt that every opportunity came with a potential price of admission. Until the 1960s, chastity was compulsory. College men were allowed to move freely at night, but college women had a mandatory curfew. If ladies were let out, they might have sex, or someone might force them to have sex. And virginity was a virtue, whether surrendered willingly or otherwise. It's unclear how much women of this era performed chastity, which is to say how much women behaved in a way that let others believe they were chaste, versus how much women actively abstained. But when the pill was legalized in 1960, public attitudes about sex started shifting significantly. Simultaneously, younger women, and especially younger middle-class educated women, were visibly questioning many of the restrictions in their daily lives. The post-World War II generation in general was questioning their parents' values. Their parents had let Hitler happen, and now America was involved in this senseless Vietnam conflict. A lot of the 60s was about parsing which values were important to maintain and which weren't. Their parents said college women would likely get raped if they went out at night. How probable was that actually, though? Many women of the post-World War II generation were desperate to find out. Because it probably wasn't as likely as they were being warned, but even if it did happen, and a woman otherwise got to enjoy much greater overall autonomy, was it maybe worth it? Couldn't she be allowed to just find out? This generational attitude is one thing to keep in mind when framing the runaways. Another thing to consider is that by the mid-1970s, sex was still framed as something everyone should want, with anyone, as frequently as possible. A holdover of the hippie era, stripped of any idealistic sugarcoating. It was normal to consciously seek out drugs and alcohol, hoping to lower your own inhibitions enough to have sex. 
Did you want to get laid? Or did you just feel like you were supposed to want to get laid? Did it matter? There wasn't a lot of cultural conversation about under what circumstances sex should happen. In the rock scene especially, people were just expected to be having it. Folks were fucking in bathrooms, in bars, at parties. Girl on girl, guy on guy, orgies. Sex was hardly private and it was happening constantly. Rock and roll meant sex. And to be an attractive woman, especially an attractive teen woman, there were a lot of rewards for being sexually available. Having a boyfriend your age was gauche. He couldn't drive, he couldn't buy beer, he didn't know anyone or have access to anything. And he couldn't buy you things. His stories weren't that interesting because he didn't have any life experience yet. And he'd definitely cramp your style out on the town. Being a sexually confident teen woman in 1970s LA meant you could get into all the hottest clubs. Hang with the hottest people. Your photograph might wind up in a newspaper or magazine, and someone might even pay to take your picture. You'd be put up in nice hotel rooms, maybe even get flown somewhere your parents could never afford to take you. Prom seemed quaint and old-fashioned compared to a night on the Sunset Strip. Sex has never existed in a vacuum, and at this moment in history, there were a lot of incentives for women, and especially teen women, to want sex. Incentives that have little to do with intercourse itself. When I interviewed women as part of my research for this season, many remarked on the high visibility of hashtag me too, while being quick to clarify not me too, as in that wasn't their experience in 70s LA, that even in hindsight, they don't view themselves as exploited or taken advantage of, and not everyone of that era experienced sexual violence. Older men didn't necessarily have to work hard to make themselves sexually desirable to underage girls. There were a lot of ways this was culturally incentivized. Within the range of choices that ERA offered, many women expressed their autonomy to the fullest extent, and it's a disservice to them to pretend otherwise. But it's also true that a lot of their access to opportunities hinged on sex. And women still understood that some sex crossed the line, even if they didn't know how to respond to that kind of sex. The sexual climate of the time, the ubiquity of drugs and alcohol, the normalization of intercourse with underage or intoxicated women, the recreational use of quaaludes, it left a lot of opportunity for crossing the line, and even less recourse than we have today, which is still very limited. In this respect, it's definitely hard to define the boundaries of autonomy for teen women of this era. And this is where it gets heavy. The ambiguity of these circumstances, combined with Fowley's influence in the music industry, is why it took almost 40 years to learn that, on January 1st, 1976, Jackie Fox was raped by Kim Fowley. It happened at a New Year's party following a show. Dozens of people recounted this to journalist Jason Cherkis, and for that reason, I'm not calling this alleged. Fowley raped her. Fowley is a rapist. The details of this night aren't important, except to say that it happened, and to say that it was the breaking point for Carrie Chrome, 
the young songwriter who had co-founded the band. By this point, Carrie's role in The Runaways had been diminishing, and pressures were growing. She'd been living with Fowley at his apartment, what he called the Dog Palace. The Runaways hailed from every corner of LA, so members would frequently stay there anywhere from days to weeks to make things easier on the group. For Carrie in particular, home life was especially chaotic. Fowley seemed like the most stable adult she knew, and he was giving her a chance to make money and maybe have a career. It felt safer to move in with Fowley than go home at all. Not long after, he began waking her in the middle of the night to do things like masturbate on her. How was she supposed to respond? This was where she lived now. If she protested, she'd have to go back to a violent stepdad and never-present mom. Stopping Fowley also meant she'd stop making money, and she'd have to let go of the band she'd started. Everything she enjoyed about her new life, the new future she was looking towards, would just stop. One day, she confided in Joan and Sandy that Fowley was harassing her. Okay, they said, but was she fucking him? As if to suggest this behavior was maybe invited. Or that she could leverage consensual sex to negotiate the non-consensual harassment. It's possible Joan and Sandy were concerned about Fowley's behavior and didn't know how to express it. There wasn't really a cultural script for how to respond to this stuff. Even now, we're struggling to write one. Plus... The runaways and the course they were on, it felt very unsure. If anyone rocked the boat by confronting what was happening, everyone's futures might capsize. So Carrie stopped bringing it up. Of course, burying her concerns meant Carrie buried a lot of her creativity too. She got writer's block, not dissimilar to how Mickey felt her performances quote-unquote went down the tubes, as she tried to ignore Fowley's advances and criticisms. But for Carrie, enough was enough. After the horror of the New Year's party, she was ready to flee the runaways. For years, Carrie agonized over whether she'd ever had any talent. Did Fowley ever see anything in her besides sex? Was there anything to even see? She'd write lyrics but never show them to anyone let them accumulate in notebooks that she carried from apartment to apartment, city to city. Eventually, she put her knack for words to use as a reporter, a performance artist, and a poet. And in the last decade or so, she started making music again, too. As she explained to Jason Cherkis, she doesn't put the outcome of her life squarely on Fowley. But even looking at it from the outside, It's hard not to imagine a different ending to Carrie's story if she'd been encouraged and nurtured without violence at home or sexual violence in her professional life. Needing money or safety from things hadn't forced her to prioritize other things that were also unsafe. If she didn't have to carry multiple psychological burdens while just trying to be a kid. As the punk scene emerged, Carrie stayed involved which also meant she had to interact with Fowley and his fans. They were part of the scene and the scene was small. She could bury down what made her uncomfortable to remain included or 
she could confront it and possibly get pushed out of everything that mattered to her. And that's one way where autonomy gets nebulous. Many women I interviewed for this podcast were very careful categorizing their relationship with Fowley. No one wanted to call him a friend per se, but many of them described feeling friendly towards him. He was a person they knew had done things, and he could be fun sometimes. One woman told me about Fowley taking her to see Poison just before they hit the big time, that he'd given her access to a lot of moments like that, and she'd never want to trade those memories. Even though Fowley had threatened to sue Pleasant at 17, Cuisine Lobotomy became a legendary cult classic, and her brush with Fowley's blowback hardly deterred her from going on to become a professional rock writer. A 20-something Pleasant formed her own in-your-face all-girl punk band called the Scream and Sirens, and sometimes she'd call Fowley and play early recordings for him over the phone. Part of her hoped it might lead to something, but part of her was genuinely curious what he thought. She respected his years of industry experience and thought he had wisdom to impart. Without open discussions of these things or models for responses, it puts the onus on individuals to call out bad behavior and suffer individual sacrifices for it. It's not treated as a group concern, so it's no wonder that different women found different terms for their relationships to Fowley. And that brings us back to Jackie. Jackie knew the stakes. Not just her personal stakes, but the band's stakes. So after the New Year's party, she had a tough decision to make. She could go to the police, who she expected to blame her, force her through a humiliating trial, and still probably never punish Fowley. That meant quitting music and being forever remembered for something done to her, not something she did. As she saw it, her other option was to tough it out. The worst had already happened, so why not push through it to do as much with her music as possible? Playing on stage before the party, Jackie had felt such a rush. She'd looked out at an ocean of kids her age, but she wasn't like them anymore. She was on the stage, in the spotlight. Performing for a packed house was empowering. Exactly how she imagined her idol, Gene Simmons, felt when he played bass. And when she showed up for band practice a few days later, no one mentioned the after party. It was as if it had never happened. If she acknowledged it, that meant giving up the thrill and excitement of music. That electric, alive feeling that being on stage had given her. So Jackie buried the New Year's party down, locked it away, pretended it happened to someone else. Maybe it had happened to overachiever Jackie Fuchs, but she was Jackie Fox now, a runaway. On February 4th, the runaway signed to Mercury Records. At the time, Mercury was a Chicago-based label with no notable female artists. Before the Runaways, they did have Fowley favorite, the New York Dolls. Today, the Dolls are celebrated as both aesthetically and sonically ahead of their time. The glimmer in manager Malcolm McLaren's eyes that helped him envision the Sex Pistols. Everyone from Sonic Youth to Guns N' Roses has been influenced by the Dolls. But in their time, they were a huge flop. 
They mixed a garage rock sound with glitter, makeup, and filth, and Mercury had no idea what to do with that. This foreshadowed a lot of Mercury's troubles with the Runaways. But that's just a taste of what to come. Join me next week as the Runaways head into the studio to record their first album. There, you'll meet a woman who is invited to join the band, possibly to replace Jackie Fox, possibly to just be in the band. But when this woman encountered Fowley, she ran for the hills. And by the hills, I mean a life in heavy metal. Even though she turned her back on the Runaways, she ended up making a lot of similar choices to some of the members, which says a lot about women's shared experiences in music during this era. Plus, there's witchcraft and hauntings and even Nikki Six in this story. You'll definitely want to tune in. So, thanks for sticking with me so far. Before getting into the credits, I want to plug some articles that are on the Bad Reputation website. As always, the website provides a list of today's sources, plus things like images and videos. But I'm throwing in some extra contextual articles for this episode too. I want to point out that I'm not including Jason Cherkis's account of Jackie Fox's rape. I don't think it's important. If you're interested, you can find it on your own. To understand why I'm not sharing it, you'll find an interview with the Runaways biographer, Evelyn McDonald, that highlights shortcomings on that story. It's media criticism, but it also makes some useful points about productive and unproductive ways to talk about sexual violence. In lieu of Cherkis's piece, I am including his conversation with journalist Jessica Hopper, where he explains his research. I think this interview says everything you need to know about Jackie's experience without the problematic elements. And you'll better understand why I'm not calling Fowley an alleged rapist. Fowley is a rapist. Do you want to sue me for saying that? That's fine. I have zero money. I also want to mention that Jackie Fox wrote an essay about why she decided to share her story and what her life has been like since. We hear a lot of stories about assault, but not about the aftermath of sharing these stories. Jackie's essay is a powerful read and it highlights a domino effect of entertainers publicly sharing their stories and how that's culminated in this moment we call Me Too. And I'm including Gia Tolentino's piece, What Should We Say About Lori Maddox and David Bowie? Tolentino really lays out both the complexity and nuance of adult men in the music industry sleeping with underage girls in the 70s. All that and more is on the Bad Reputation website. That's badreputationpod.com. Badreputationpod.com. Phew, that's a long one. Okay, thanks for listening. This podcast is written and produced by me, Miko Caparel. We had some great guests on today's episode. Sheree Curry was played by Kat DeBacher. Kim Fowley was played by Scott Plant. Lita Ford was played by Kat Buckley. Joan Jett was played by Jonna Jackson. Jackie Fox was played by Molly Claire Berkson. And Pleasant Gaiman was actually Pleasant Gaiman. As in, that audio was from an interview I did with her. And that audio at the beginning was actually Kim Fowley. Yeah, he says that shit. If you'd like to hear some rare history in next season, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Someday I'm going to learn how to say it. There are some reward tiers where you can even weigh in on future seasons, and there's some fun swag too. Otherwise, please share this show with everyone you can. Tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it. All of that really helps. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and please, please, please do this because it really helps people find us. 
Thank you so much for listening to Bad Reputation, and I will see you next episode.